Welcome to another edition of Tech Post brought to you by Limerick City Community Radio in association with the Limerick Post newspaper. I'm Shawnee Ryan and Tech Post is sponsored by .ie who handle all the .ie domain registrations in Ireland and go to weare.ie for more information. And I'm delighted to be once again joined by Dave the Don O'Neill. Dave, how are you? I'm here. We're back. Yes, we're back. And this show, we're once again, we're a bit late in the month uh, getting this out to you. But there is a good reason for that. And uh, that's because we held off because we wanted to talk about the big thing that happened there recently, which is Google I.O. So that's what we're going to be talking about this month. But before that, just to let you know, stay tuned because we've kind of got a two-parter here in this. Uh, Later in the show, I am bringing you a clip from one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, It's called Patented or Patented, whatever way you like to pronounce it, hosted by Dallas Campbell and uh, brought to you by HistoryHit.com. So with Thanks to uh, History Hit. They've uh, let me share a clip of a recent podcast on artificial intelligence, on AI, and that's to come in the second half of the show. But right now, Dave, let's talk about Google I.O. First thing I noticed, Dave, I don't know if you noticed how many times they mentioned the word AI in the whole keynote. It was a lot. Uh, I'd, I'd definitely say over a hundred times. Uh, <sighs> it seems as though the, every, everything nowadays is AI, AI, AI. And I've, I've a small bit of a, an issue with these, Dave, because I, I think the, the term AI has kind of become uh, misused at this stage now. Like to me, a lot of these things like ChatGPT and everything, they're all, and uh, Google's barred. Um, what, what, Microsoft have done integrating ChatGPT into Bing and every other company that's bringing out something similar as well. I consider them like large language models or Mm -hmm. machine learning, but I don't think of them as AI in the true sense of AI. What what do you think on that, Dave? Well, I mean, if you're, you know, uh, if you grew up watching The Terminator, you might look at it a bit different for sure. But um, yeah, I mean... The whole point of AI is that it is an intelligence that it can self-grow, if you will. It doesn't need someone to input a bit of code to make it better. It can, you know, it can do it itself. Mm. And I suppose that's the, and and the fact that it's not real is artificial. So it's kind of AI, but I suppose there's just many layers to it. Yeah, it's a loose way of terming it. But uh, I I would prefer if AI was kind of um, kept to what we traditionally are thinking about artificial intelligence of something that thinks for itself and can do things on its own. Uh, I know, the, but uh, what, language what model doesn't, it doesn't yeah. flow off the tongue so easily and it's not something they can market. Yeah, so what happens when we do get the robots that can do all these things and thinks for themselves? What do we call them? AI plus? AI plus Max. <laughs> plus Max, here you go. And what kind of colors will they come in? <laughs> yes, Moonlight indeed. blue. Yes, indeed. That's It's all about the colors, Dave. It's all about the colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So look, the start of IO, uh, Google highlighted how they're bringing AI capabilities to so many areas, uh, to their workflow, to... Um, all the Google, or sorry, Workspace, uh, so Google Docs and things where you can actually like help me write, which is very similar to what we've talked about already with Chat GPT, yeah. where it helps you, like you can give it a prompt and it will give you back a well-written document or reply to an email, something like that. And I have to say, like, I'm I'm quite enjoying using ChatGPT at the moment for different things. And like we, we've talked about it before, Dave, and the, the caveat always comes with like double check what it comes back, what it brings back to you. Um, make sure if there's any kind of factual quotes inside in it that they are actual facts. And uh, like I've, I've been using it for generating different things and it just means that I can get a nice document written for me or a letter and it'll do it in 20 seconds 
and then I can spend two to three minutes just editing it down, uh, removing kind of maybe redundancy out of it and cleaning it up and making it look a small bit better. But I can have something that previously might have taken me 10 to 15 minutes. I can have it done in two to three minutes now. So I see these tools as great additions just in terms of productivity. It's just another tool that we use, the same as when the computer replaced the typewriter, things like that. The typewriter replaced the, the printing press. It's just another tool for you. It's like Photoshop for creative people where you can cut out the sky and make it blue, get rid of the clouds, things like that. So I, I'm really on board with this stuff now. Uh, I don't think it's going to cause like people are talking about uh, loss of jobs and things like that. I don't think it's going to do it. I just think it's going to make people more productive. Maybe it'll lead to a four day working week because of things like this. Uh, <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. No, it's not. It's not going to do it anytime soon, but there will come a time when it's like um, photographers, for example, hmm. um, they used to make big money out of uh, working for papers and stuff like that, but now everyone's got a camera in their pocket. So correct. So that is true. Yeah. Mm. So maybe eventually you might see uh, news articles written by AIs, quote unquote. But yeah. um, I don't think they're going to rely on it just yet. No, no, not yet. No, we're we're a bit off from that because it it still needs the human moderator. So. Mm. Maybe it can do the heavy lifting, but it's not going to it's not going to do the the finer details or the nuances around proper news writing. So I agree with you on that anyway. It's not replacing anything, but there's still they still showed off some great tools for creativity. Um, say, for instance, one of the things they showed was uh, this new like they've had this magic eraser for a while. And yeah. that's been just getting better and better at cutting things out of a picture and what would have been behind it. It repaints it, so it'll repaint a wall or a field or something like that. And it's doing a much better job of it now. But it, they also introduced this thing called Magic Editor, which kind of allowed you. So the, the one that, that they showed was a picture of a kid with a load of balloons and it was kind of cropped off at the edge because the, it wasn't centered properly and they basically just moved the picture to the right and the magic editor auto completed the balloons and the bench beside it so it just extended the picture to what would have been there to the left of it um and and it looked good it looked good but again that stuff that like designers have been doing in photoshop for a long time and uh it's just automating it, making that tool a lot easier for a normal lay person to use. Uh, there's probably designers out there who are happy with that, actually, because it means that family won't be getting onto them saying, can you edit this picture for me a bit more? Uh, so maybe it'll save a few people's uh, sanity, maybe. Well, sure, yeah. It's going to help um, us who are, you know, who are creatively handicapped as i'd like to say in my yes. in my uh you know circumstances yeah it will help us do a few things like without having to bother people who are good at that stuff you're right yeah yeah exactly yeah um i can draw a straight line pretty well as long as i have a ruler and that's yeah. about as much as my creativity gets to <laughs> yeah. uh right um now they also showed off the what they call like this ai in search and okay it's it's very similar to what you'll get with kind of like the, any any of the others that we talked about already, whereby you ask it a question, show me this or recommend this to me or whatever. And as I was watching it, a few things came into my head, Dave, about the the whole usage of AI in the search area. So Google search at the moment is heavily dependent on ads oh, and. Yeah pushing websites to you uh, to go to. And a lot of those websites depend on Google ads for their revenue. So with this, it was showing like that you'd ask it something and it would pull information that it has gathered from probably from different sources on the web. And again, like if you were looking for a product, that's fine because it's going to be relying on Google's own shopping channel, which 
probably will lead to less people going to third party shopping sites, um, which might lead to those people not advertising on Google as much when the in the native like kind of AdSense. Uh, but also, like, if if you asked something, an opinion on something or uh, just a bit of information about a location or something like that, and let's say it pulled from your blog website, Dave, and that information was kind of coming from you, um, the because the Google search has presented it as an answer to the person who searched, then are they going to be less likely to click through to your website? Because traditional search at the moment just lists, here's 10 websites I've found, and this is top one, the most popular, highest ranked one. But if Google are given the answer, then what will entice people to go to a website if the Google search has already answered it? So we're going to see a lot less traffic to websites. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a very valid point. Now, we know the Google Assistant has been less inclined to give you that list of websites as opposed to Siri, but if it's going to mm-hmm. be more universal now, then, yeah, that could be a problem. Yeah, like if it starts leading to less traffic, then those mm. websites who rely on advertising through Google's ad program yeah. will get less traffic, less ads, less revenue. So... Will we see a drop off in people who create content for the web? Like there's loads of people out there who create great websites, great informative websites. And if they're not getting the traffic anymore because Google's scraping their information, then will they stop doing it? So we'll see less authentic sources. Uh, you know, I'd like to think that Big G would have a, a solution to this already thought mm, through, but it's, I, yeah. I really don't see it. I don't know. I I would assume they have because it's not as though me and you are the only ones in the world thinking about this problem mm. <laughs> that we suddenly <laughs> no, see sure. a flaw to the whole thing. I'm sure they have, but I'd like to know where they're going to go with it because if they, let's say I write uh, a blog article or something in the morning and it's posted up online and part of what I wrote is used as an answer that AI gives when someone asks a question, then what what do I get out of it? Am I going to get any monetary information out of the fact that their uh, AI is better because of my information? Will people start putting their content behind paywalls so that Google can't get to that content? Um, I don't know. Could be. It could be. Yeah, that's certainly one solution. But, mm. um, you know, but like I said, they, they're, they're kind of doing this already with uh, the Google Assistant and actually on desktop search too. Like you ask a question and mm. it might it will give you some drop downs like an accordion drop down thing um yeah. with potential snippets from various websites and you, you never know if they're you know, yeah. true or not but exactly. uh, they're there at yeah. least now voice assistants have been doing this for a while so yeah. if you ask your echo device it'll give you back an answer yeah. but it doesn't say um like here's the website i found it from um, although actually part of the problem with Siri is that 90% of what you ask it, it says, I found this on the web and directs you to a website. Um, but like the, the voice ones have been doing this for some while, that, that that's the way they're going, uh, where you're, it's not generating traffic for a website, it's just generating a response. So mm. where is that going to lead to with this? Because like, Google are the biggest. So yeah. this is it's if they're changing their whole model around search, then I I go I'm gonna be interested to see where the model around search changes to match the model around advertising that they have because that, that is their model. So it'll be yeah. Well, you know, um not to put to find a point on it. Yeah. Uh, Google is not, uh, you know, they don't really have any qualms about screwing over their customers, you know, so who knows? That's true. That is true. Yeah. Right. Okay, let's move on from, th- th- they were all the things that they did on AI. So first, before we before we get into the hardware part, let's just talk about some of the, the highlights of the that they showed off for the new version of Android. And one of them was a big, uh, a, a big, redesign and feature update to the Find My Device network. Uh, 
which at this stage now it's very similar to apple's find my network so you can track your phones your headphones your watch things like that um and i think they're doing some sort of collaboration with tile as well for that as well but um one of the big things that i was glad to see was that they announced that they're collaborating with apple for the anti-tracking mechanisms for things like air tags and they specifically showed an air tag on screen for this because at the moment if i'm driving and there's an air tag not belonging to me or if, well don't have to be driving i could be anywhere and if there's an air tag that doesn't belong to me and it's not within the vicinity of the owner uh then if it stays with me for long enough then I'll get a notification on my phone to tell me that there is possibility of a device tracking me. All right. Which is good. Mm-hmm. Now, up to now, you had to kind of, if you found it, you could use NFC on an Android phone to find out details about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it wasn't actively telling you. But it's great to see Apple and Google collaborating now that you're going to have all these devices that will actually warn you if something is tracking you. And that's only a plus for people, really. I have a question, and this is something I think I'm going to have to go digging into and following up on, because, and and it just came to me as I was kind of watching the keynote. Right, so they're collaborating on things like AirTags so that it'll notify you. But a lot of devices now come with the Find My Network built in. So there's people bringing out water bottles or backpacks that have Find My capabilities built in. And none of those, I've never heard of any of those companies um, having to have any kind of anti-tracking mechanisms built into those devices. So I don't know if you get warned if one of those is near you. So while they're all concentrating on these air tags and letting everybody know that there's one in your vicinity. So if I wanted to do it, what's to stop me just like buying a normal water bottle that has the, the find my device um, network built in and leaving that in someone's car or someone's backpack or something like that and let that track them in the same way and they won't get notified. Well, wouldn't they though? I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm ignorant here, but if it's on the Find My Network, the Apple Find My Network in this Mm. case, right? Would that not be treated the same way as an AirTag would in terms of, okay, if it's not near its owner, but it's near another iPhone user at the moment, would they not say the same thing? Would it not give a notification? That's what I'm going to have to find out. So that's my homework for the next month is to go and figure this out. Will other devices that have um, built in find my network? Uh, Because like when I think about it, AirPods have the new AirPods Pro have the same capability as well. Mm -hmm. So I could just leave my AirPods Pro in someone's bag. And I don't think that has any notification system in it either and actually i could i could try that i could try with that that's my yeah. I, I will report back on this one and find out uh now the the downside of that is like the airpods pro would only have a couple of days of battery life whereas the air tag would have like up to a year <clears throat> so plus it's about what yeah. five times more expensive too yes true yeah but <laughs> if it's capable to do it it's capable to do it so i'll i'll report back on that anyway Right, let's get back on to Android. Another big uh, update they did was um, emoji wallpapers, Dave. Can you imagine that? Oh, You can pick emojis and it will create a wallpaper for your phone in different colors. It's mind-blowing. That's AI at its pinnacle. Like, human race can just stop right now. We've got emoji wallpapers. Mm. No, but I, I did hear that you could give it like a, you know, a description of a wallpaper and it would generate something for you. That would, I'm going yes. to try that out. If that's a thing, I'm going to try it out. Yes, it did. Um, you can do the like, show me like, 
I don't know, whatever, limerick in post-impressionist uh, style. And it will generate artwork for you. And right. it, it looks as though, from what I get to gather, it looks as though it'll do it kind of unique to each person who asks. So we, if I did it and you did it, we both wouldn't get the exact same pictures. There might be slight differences in them. So it's a bit more personalized. Um, and using their expression system as well, um, it will uh, change your the rest of your um all your preferences inside in Android for yeah. to, to match the, the predominant colors. And another thing they showed off with then was the cinematic wallpapers whereby you could take a picture and make it a cinematic one. And it kind of took the main subject away from the, the background and mm-hmm. using parallax effect, it would allow like, as you move the phone, it'll move the person or whatever the main subject is a pet or something over and back across the background. So I presume they're using something similar to the magic editor to fill in the blanks behind the person as they move, what like would be behind them. Uh, and it, it looked kind of cool. Yeah, it's nice. But again, uh, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be getting that excited about it. No. Right. <clears throat> um, let's get onto the hardware. So, uh, All right. they, there's three different things here. So we'll kind of race through the first one, really, which is just the Pixel 7a. And yeah. new, um, the, like the A the A series of their devices are quite popular because they are for pretty comprehensive devices for a budget price. And yeah, yeah, the, it's the more budget conscious phone to yeah. the Pixel, in this case, the Pixel 7 and the Pro. So yeah. I was so, kind of surprised at the price point. I, yeah. I would have expected it to be cheaper. Oh, really? So yeah, well, it came in at what? Four ninety nine, right? Yeah, dollars, yeah. So it's yeah, probably going to be similar get, over here. You can get a Pixel 7 for that if you really want to. Maybe oh. 530 or something like that, but not too mm. much more expensive. Yeah. Well, this one has the G2 chip with Tensor, 8 gigs of RAM. Yeah, um, that's what we got. Is it? <laughs> it's a Generation 2 Tensor, yeah. It's the oh, same wow. one. Well, yeah. Okay. Uh, a bigger camera sensor. And oh. that's really it. They didn't really go into much more details on the 7A, really. Uh, so, yeah, I suppose when you when you do compare it, maybe it's not that big, uh, like, or a good a deal. Maybe it's not. Maybe. I, I don't know. Look, it depends on what, you know, what day you go, where you are and stuff yeah. like that. But you could pick up a Pixel for less than 550 sure. Well, you know what I mean? And okay. it doesn't seem like a huge difference to me, you know? Yeah. But it does have personal AI built in now. Oh, well. I see. I yeah. see. Yeah, that's the difference. Too. Yeah. That's the difference. Right. This next one, I really like this device, but I think they're missing a trick on it. So Uh-oh. this was the tablet, the Pixel tablet. Yeah. We talked about this before when they announced that they were going to do it this year, uh, last year. Uh, mm-hmm. But the tablet with a charging speaker dock base station. Right? Yes. So 11 inch display on this um, apps designed to cater for the big screen. Android tablets up to now have been pretty crappy experience, really. And th- this one looks as though they've addressed that a lot. But I do love this dockable base. Um, but I think the part that they missed the trick on is the base on its own is just a charger and a speaker. If you take the screen away, the tablet away, then it's useless. And it should have been like a, a Google Home device. It should have been just like something that you could still talk to and right. get yeah. to do things. But on its own, it's nothing. That's what it seems to me, unless they're going to come out with a version two of it in the future or something. But like if you're in a busy household and like you have this thing docked and you're using it to control your home or play music or watch something on it, uh, do recipes or something like that. And then kid comes in, picks it up, takes it upstairs so they can watch the latest episode or something on one of the streaming platforms. Then the base station you have downstairs is completely useless. You can't talk to it and say, turn on the lights or turn off the lights or do something. And I think that's the trick that they missed. 
So you're right, and it's taking up real estate. It's taking up exactly. another power socket, yeah. all for for nothing, really. For nothing, yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, and you have to go then looking for the tablet. Who has it? Who left it? Where? And get it, bring it back, dock it, so that you can use that speaker again. So yeah. in a busy in in a one person household, perfect. But in a busy household, no. And busy household, the, the one good thing that they did, and I'm looking forward to this coming to something like an iPad as well, is you now have multi-user support. So you can switch between users easily, just kind of like by biometrics, uh, switch between uh, different users. Yeah, um, it's always been a bit uh, kind of half-baked before, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, like iOS has this in the educational side, if you're in a classroom environment and you've got an iPad set up as education, you can right. switch between users. It, it does have multi-user function, but they never brought it to this, the normal iPad. It's it's obviously there inside the system, but they just haven't put it in. And the the Pixel tablet with the base is, again, $499. So be interesting okay. to see how it comes with over With the here. base? Yeah, with Not the base. So it's bad. Yeah, it's good. Good price. So finally, Dave, then uh, they introduced their Pixel Fold. Mm. And uh, we don't have much time left on this, so let's just run it through it quickly. Um, I like the look of the device. Uh, when it's folded flat together, the, you don't have that gap at the hinge that the Galaxy one does, where it's kind of like not completely flat against each other. Um, it, it The size is nice. They haven't gotten for this really long front display so that when you open it up you've got a square device kind of thing yeah it's a 7.6 inch display when you open it up and again everything designed in android for um what they call continuity so if you're watching something on the front screen and you open it up it automatically goes to the inside screen and continues playing um split screen mode for different apps they've redesigned a lot of apps to take care to cater for the larger display and for the um the 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 bigger real estate really and this fact that you've got a dual mo- uh, mode where you can have it inside or outside uh one of the the things they showed which was great was um this dual screen interpreter mode so you're looking at one screen and the person across from you is looking at the other side of it and Mm -hmm. you're talking in different languages and the thing is live translating between the two people on screen which looked really cool i really like that yeah um size wise and everything i really liked it again you still when you have it open you still see the crease on the fold which i don't think we're ever going to get away from with any foldable device really um that's pretty much it on um, Google I.O. I do like mm. I do like the idea of the fold. I love the Pixel tablet um, with the base. As if they would just make the base station usable as something that you could talk to as well, then it would be perfect. Um, and everything else was AI. <laughs> right. Speaking of AI, let's get on to... Dallas Campbell, and I want to say a big thanks to all the people over in History Hit, uh, Dallas, and to Charlotte as well. And uh, this is a clip from one of the most recent uh, podcasts from them on the Patented Podcast. So uh, I'll have links in the show notes for that where you can go and listen to it. And they've, they've, they've plenty of other podcasts over on that as well. You can go to historyhit.com. But enjoy this clip of the Patented Podcast and get the full version uh, through the link in the show notes or just go to historyhit.com and you can find it there and uh, encourage all listeners to go over and check it out. And we'll be back again next month. So thanks, Dave. And we'll talk to you again soon. See ya. Welcome back. Now it's time for my interview with Mike Wildridge, who is a professor of computer science at Oxford University and the author of many wonderful books about AI, including The Road to Consciousness, The Story of AI. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Maybe I should start here. Maybe I should ask you what kind of people get into AI research in the first place, because there seems to be a shift from it being quite a philosophical discipline to then becoming just like maths. Maybe not maths, you know, number crunching. Do you personally have a kind of philosophical bent about it in that sort of big kind of umbrellary? This is all about dualism and mind and body and theory of mind and what is consciousness and all that. 
Yeah, after a couple of glasses of wine is yes, my honest the, answer. <laughs> yes, okay. That's not where the centre of gravity is in AI. That's not what most people are working on. It's certainly fascinating. And the closer we get to what you might call real AI, then I think actually those questions are going to start to become a bit more prominent again. At the moment, they're mainly a bit abstract because we're nowhere near real AI. Well, that's interesting. The problem is, Mike, is that we love headlines and people love simple, easy headlines of dystopian futures or utopian futures or massive breakthroughs and and that kind of stuff. It's an easy sell. But the sort of nuance, I suppose, of AI doesn't have that same attraction to the general populace. Absolutely. And the thing is, we've been conditioned by movies and TV shows and so on to accept that AI is about robots with red eyes. You know, that's the standard. Crushing skulls as they walk along. (laughs) Exactly. You've got it. Great movie, but it's really science fiction. And we've been conditioned to think that that's what AI is. And the reality of AI is exciting, but it's nothing like that. You know, like Asimov's famous AI law. I'm sure we'll touch on that in a moment. But I'm going to have Dallas Campbell's law, which is the longer you have a random conversation at a dinner party, the greater the probability of someone bringing up chat GPT as a latest topic of conversation. Everyone's obsessed by chat GPT. Part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode now is everyone's talking about chat GPT at the moment and in that, oh my God, this is going to change the world. This is going to change the future. Can we just clear that up? First of all, what is chat GPT and how amazing or not amazing is it? Okay, so chat GPT is a tool developed by a company called OpenAI. Despite the name, they're not really open. They're funded by Microsoft. And it's what AI people call a large language model. That's a very useless bit of terminology for describing what the program does. What it does is something actually phenomenally simple. If I open up my smartphone now and start typing a text message to my wife, my smartphone will suggest completions. If I type I'm going to be, it might suggest the completion in the pub or late, right? And how does it do that? Because it's seen whenever I start typing a text message to my wife saying I'm going to be, then the likeliest next thing that I'm going to type is either going to be late or in the pub. And so it's learned that completion, that that's the likeliest thing. What ChatGPT does, and there's a whole bunch of other systems that are similar, what they do is exactly the same thing, but on an unimaginably larger scale. So the way that ChatGPT has been trained to use the AI terminology is not just by looking at the smartphone messages on your phone, but by all the text on the World Wide Web, every bit of text that's available in digital format. And all of that is geared towards type a prompt, what's the next thing that's going to appear after that prompt? And that's actually all they're doing. But if you get it on a sufficient scale, you get enough data and you throw enough computer power at it, it turns out that it can produce incredibly natural language and you can have conversations with it. And everyone's played with it. And everyone's been blown away. Okay, is that artificial intelligence or is it just a kind of simulation? Is it an illusion of intelligence simply because there's lots of data? Or maybe that's what intelligence is. I don't know. That's a nice way of putting it. It's a big question in the field, the extent to which it's actually being creative and produce anything new or just whether really all it's doing is parroting back to you the stuff that it's seen out there, some approximation of everything that it's seen out there on the World Wide Web. But that doesn't stop it being useful. And it is useful and it is fascinating. It's useful and amazing, but it's that thing of like, is it just a neat trick? Or is it something more important? But then maybe normal our intelligence, maybe that's just a neat trick. <laughs> it's- well, we're just atoms that are bumping together. There's no magic underneath there. We are just chemical scum on a rock. Floating in space. Exactly, yes. Thank you for leaving me with that picture. (laughs) Sorry. Okay, let's start at the beginning. You know, we mentioned Aristotle and people have been talking about this idea of machines and robots and that kind of stuff. But take away the body and just concentrate on the mind. I always think about Alan Turing. Is that the beginnings of AI? And why did we want to build AI in the first place? Where did this obsession come from? So maybe you could take us back in time a bit. If we go back to the ancient Greeks, then the blacksmith to the gods and for the ancient Greek was a chap called Hephaestus. And what Hephaestus did was he took metal machines and brought them to life. So famously, the Titans were created by Hephaestus. And then you've got In the Middle Ages, you've got the myth of the golem in Prague, a creature fashioned from clay that was brought to life. And so these are very, very old ideas. The idea of creating something and imbuing it with intelligence, and I'm trying to resist the word life because that's a different thing that would take us off in a different direction. But it's a very, very old idea. 
But there was no mechanism for doing it until Alan Turing invented the computer in the 1930s. And once the first real computers appeared, Turing was fascinated with the idea of getting them to play chess and things like this, tasks which require intelligence. And there was a big buzz at the time in the 1950s. There were lots of people talking about it. It was kind of a viral topic because digital computers were the new thing and they were described as electronic brains. But then he wrote the first real scientific paper on AI called Computing Machinery and Intelligence in 1950. It's that paper which set out the Turing test. And the Turing test is the famous test for artificial intelligence. Can you just give us a reminder of what the Turing test is? So Turing was fed up with people arguing about whether machines could really be intelligent. He thought this was a bit of a pointless discussion. And so he invented the Turing test to just stop people talking about it. And the test is very simple. So you sit down in front of a computer screen and you're having a conversation via that computer screen with something. Something's on the other end of a line, but you don't know whether the thing that's on the other end of the line is a person or a computer. And what Turing said is, suppose after a reasonable amount of time, you can type any question you want, you're absolutely free to just have a conversation with this thing. And after a reasonable amount of time, Turing said, if you can't tell whether the thing on the other end is a computer or a person, then forget arguing about it. Just accept that this thing is intelligent. Well, that's interesting. That gets us back to chat GPT because I've had arguments with it and had discussions with it. And I mean, I know it because I know what it is, but if I didn't know what it was, I wouldn't be able to tell. Well, we cracked the Turing test. I think a lot of my colleagues are saying, well, this isn't quite the Turing test that Turing invented. And, you know, there are some, and it isn't. But actually, for all intents and purposes, I think now the Turing test is history. We've quietly passed that. Right. That's interesting. We've kind of moved the goalpost a little bit. So the Turing test back then, if we can do that, then we've cracked it. But actually, we haven't really cracked it. Well, I think we haven't really cracked it. But I think what it tells you is that the Turing test is not necessarily a full-bodied test for AI. It tests only a tiny, narrow bit of intelligence. Yes, that's interesting. Our definitions of AI, what it actually means, is constantly evolving, presumably, as time goes on. Absolutely. Can I just ask, actually, just while we're on Turing, where did the term artificial intelligence come from? Did the term itself have an origin? Oh, it did, yeah. So this goes back to an American called John McCarthy in the 1950s, and he wanted funding. He was applying for funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, and he was interested in AI. I think he knew of Turing, although I'm not sure he actually knew him personally. And in fact, Turing had just died round about the time that the term was coined. Yeah, McCarthy needed a name for this thing that he wanted to do. There was no real name for it, so he just used the term artificial intelligence. I have to tell you, a lot of people very much wish he'd chosen another term. <laughs> because firstly, artificial sounds fake. You don't like artificial sugar. I mean, it sounds like fake, and who wants fake intelligence? And actually, a lot of the things that AI is focused on aren't things that seem to require intelligence in humans. Like driving a car, for example, isn't something we associate with intelligence in humans. So it's actually quite a misleading term. But I think artificial is the thing that makes us wince a little bit. It's quite interesting, actually, how language, as technology improves, we develop, how old language confuses the matter and things like artificial intelligence, just the words themselves, gets us into all kinds of problems. I always think survival of the fittest is a term a bit like that. People always think fittest as, oh, I can run fast. But it's fittest as in jigsaw puzzle fitting rather than health fitting. Here's a question for you. You mentioned the sort of Greeks imbuing a spirit, if you like, a life force into mechanical objects. I think of early robots, like kind of Shaky the Robot. Do you remember Shaky the Robot? I do, yes. I was a little bit young at the time. And this idea of being able to get machines that can navigate the human world. Why is something like Shaky the Robot, why is that a symbol for that early golden age of AI. So Shaky was a robot that was built at Stanford Research Institute in California in the States. And it was a hugely ambitious project at the time to build kind of what we might think of as the dream of AI, an intelligent mobile robot, a robot that you could give instructions to and that would be able to move around some environment and carry out tasks for us, you know, move blocks from one place to another or the idea that it might tidy up your house or something like that. They invented a whole bunch of AI technologies in 
shaky. But actually, one of the really interesting things about it is that it showed just how hard AI in the real world really is. So, for example, computers at the time were just too big for a mobile robot. So they had to have a radio link to communicate with the robot. You know, the computer was off in a room somewhere. There was a TV camera that Shaky had that was supposed to show it what was around it. But it took 15 minutes before it could get a usable picture. And it took so much power that actually they could only use it very, very briefly. And to get Shaky to be useful, they had to actually paint its environment. They had to paint it in different colours, like orange and white, so that it could distinguish bits of the environment. So it was a fascinating project and a really important one, but actually it showed just how hard AI in the real world is. i got to say, though, if you're going to design that, why would you call it shaky? Because already you're setting yourself up for it to be rubbish. Like they should have called it like deep thought. You know, that's cool. But like shaky, mm. <laughs> I think it literally was shaky. I think that's why it was called shaky. The other thing I've noticed as well is in terms of AI, like any form of technology, progress is never a smooth upward ramp. It's always plateaus and leaps in ideas and technology. That early golden age, did it come to an end? Did it, did it stop for a while? And if it did stop, why did it stop? So 1950, Turing writes his first paper, Computing Machinery and Intelligence. And there were at that time, a tiny number of computers, probably less than five in the whole world. By the end of that decade, there were programs that could do rudiments of learning and problem solving and solving logical puzzles. And so in that one decade, it looked like real rapid progress had been made. And people got very excited about that, much the same way that people are getting excited now. And they said, well, if we carry on this progress, then it's not going to be long before we've solved it. But it plateaued. It didn't get anywhere. And the techniques that were being used at the time just didn't really scale beyond that, beyond a few toy problems. So by the early 1970s, there was a lot of cynicism and frustration. And we saw what was called the first AI winter. Basically, AI winter is where people just get fed up of the hype and they say, OK, enough. You've had your run. You've had your fun. The research funding was cut off. The field contracted an awful lot. And actually, AI acquired a reputation something like homeopathic medicine at the time. It was seen as a bit of an eccentric niche area. I presume, is that just because we went down a dead end in terms of the technology and thought? We went as far as we could and actually, like all technology, I suppose, you end up down dead ends. Yeah, that's exactly right. People imagine that the journey from ignorance to truth in science is kind of just steady uphill progress. It absolutely isn't. You know, there are all sorts of dead ends that you go down and you get excited about something which looks like it's going to work and then just turns out to be a false start. And that's exactly what happened with AI. There was an idea, wasn't there, that the way to crack AI was just to upload, if you like, all of human knowledge. And that would be it. If we could teach a computer everything that we know somehow, well, that's the way forward. Is it CYC? Was that what it was called, that idea? Yep, psych. Just tell us that little branch, if you would. Yeah, so this was an idea which was one of the main threads in AI for the first few decades. If you look at how AI has tried to do what it does, there's been two different approaches. And the first approach, the approach that dominated at the beginning, was basically try to model the mind, the conscious mind, conscious reasoning. You know, we talk to ourselves in sentences, in languages. We're trying to decide what to do. We might have a mental conversation with ourselves, weighing up the pros and cons. Try to model that, the conscious reasoning processes. That stuff is called symbolic AI. And the basic idea of symbolic AI is that intelligence is a problem of knowledge. And so if you want, for example, a program to do automated translation, then what you need to do is find out the knowledge that a human being uses when they do that translation and give that to a machine. So that's what all the energy was about for about three decades, was about trying to do that. And there was a new job title called knowledge engineer, somebody whose job it was to talk to human experts, find out what knowledge they used when they did what they did, and give that knowledge to machines. And then the psych experiment started in the early 1980s was just taking that idea to its limit. Let's try and give a machine everything that a reasonably educated person knows. Who was behind it? The lead was a US researcher called Doug Leonard, and he was a very influential AI researcher in the 1970s and early 80s, very charismatic. And he was absolutely convinced that this was the key. He said, there's no magic ingredient to this. We've just got to figure out all of that knowledge, give it to a machine, and Bob's your uncle. 
It kind of reminds me this, how you explain that, of deep thought in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where you build this machine and you give it all the knowledge and then you stand in front of it and then you ask it the question and it gives you the wrong answer because actually the whole approach was wrong in the first place. And it says, what's the answer to life 42? Well, what's the question? You kind of got to backtrack out of that and then start again on a new direction. Yeah, well, it was a very grand experiment. At one point, they had pretty much armies of people all writing down all of the knowledge that we have about the world. And just think about all of the knowledge that you've used throughout your day. This is pre-Google. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Psych is often held up as the biggest failed experiment in AI. But actually, the Google knowledge graph, which underpins modern Google, there is a bit of psych DNA in that. Okay, why was psych, or that idea of getting people just to upload facts, why didn't that work? Why why did that turn out to be a dead end? All sorts of reasons. But you're trying to organise complete knowledge of human consensus reality where the hell do you start where do you begin to describe everything that a reasonably educated person knows and actually it turns out that an awful lot of it was just too hard to express particularly i have to say things about the everyday world you know how to navigate the world the real world is very fuzzy and very messy and you can't describe it as a whole bunch of crisp facts it just doesn't fit very well so we had this psych perhaps the greatest failed experiment in ai you mentioned kind of where we are now, this idea of neural networks. Maybe you could just elucidate what you mean by a neural network. Yeah, sure. Sounds quite biological. It does. And again, I suspect quite a lot of neural networks researchers regret the choice. I mean, the original idea goes back to the 1940s and two US researchers, McCulloch and Pitts. And what they were struck by was if you look at the nervous system or brain of an animal under a microscope, you'll see enormous numbers of nerve cells, neurons, that are connected to one another in huge arrays. So a neuron nerve cell in a human brain might have thousands of connections to other neurons. So they're enormous networks. And they were just struck with the analogy between these networks and electrical circuits. And so they started from there. And their question was, can we build electrical circuits that mimic that stuff? Well, we don't do it in electrical circuits. We do it in software. So people have been working on this more or less continually until then. It had a moment in the sunshine in the 1980s where it looked like there was progress, but it hit the buffers of what computers could do at the time. The computers of the time just weren't powerful enough. But then this century, it really started to work. When you say they looked at how the brain works in terms of a network... And then you said, oh, it wasn't quite like that. It was software. But what is the software that makes a neural network? Like, What does it look like? So you've got large numbers of little software components, artificial neurons, and each of these is receiving inputs. It's talking to a whole bunch of other neurons. And these are feeding its signals, basically. And they're electrochemical signals in the brain. And they're just software signals in a piece of software. And what each neuron is doing is doing a tiny, tiny little pattern recognition task, just looking to see whether it can see a pattern on those inputs, but an extremely simple pattern. And when it sees that pattern, it gets excited and generates an output that feeds into other neurons. Now, if you have sufficiently large networks that are arranged in the right way, it turns out that they can produce intelligent behavior. Interesting. In the 1990s, I remember there was things like Kasparov, the chess players are beaten by a computer. A couple of landmarks that seem to shine out. We go, oh my God, something interesting's happened here. Maybe you could talk us through some of those. So Deep Blue was the IBM chess playing computer in 1996, 1997. And it was the first time that a computer had beaten a chess grandmaster under competition circumstances, really, definitively. I think Kasparov won one or two matches, but Deep Blue won the competition. Interestingly, that was not neural network technology. That was much more like symbolic AI. And there was a lot of criticism at the time that behind the scenes, basically, Deep Blue was just a very, very, very powerful computer that was looking through all the possible alternatives, just searching through all the alternatives to try to find the best move. That's really interesting. I suppose it's the difference between the kind of brute force of like, I can look at all the squares on a chessboard and all the permutations, and because I'm a big computer, I can figure it out, as opposed to actually learning. Tell us about AlphaGo, because I know that's a sort of slightly different game. And we had a slightly different result. So AlphaGo plays the game of Go. And the difference with the game of Go and the game of chess is the following. On an average chessboard, at any given time, there's about 35 different possible moves. So if you're just going to exhaustively consider all your possible combinations, to look one move ahead, you're looking 35 moves. To look two moves ahead, it's 35 times 35, which is something like a 1,000. Three moves ahead, 
it's 30,000, and the number of possibilities just explodes. In the game of Go, the average number of moves is something like 200. So just two moves ahead, you're looking at 200 times 200 possible combinations. The number explodes. So this exhaustively looking through all the possibilities, you might just get away with it in a game of chess with a few tricks, but it's just not remotely feasible. So what AlphaGo did was remarkable because the game of Go looked like it was a decade at least out of reach of computers. But it uses neural networks. It's unlike Deep Blue, the IBM chess playing computer. It uses neural network technology. And basically it uses neural networks to try to assess what a current board position looks like. Is this a good or bad board position? And then try to figure out what the next possible moves are in that. And the way that it's done that is it's just been trained on huge numbers numbers of games of Go. Some of them self-play, where it just plays against itself, and some of them Go games that it's downloaded from the internet. So it's a completely different approach, but it was remarkable to see that unfold. You know, we were watching the competition unfold in real time. And I say Go felt like it was at least a decade away from being solved. And then, you know, for all intents and purposes now, it's a solved problem in AI terms. Wasn't the surprising thing that it demonstrated a sense of creativity rather than just a brute force thing? It was doing moves that actually seemed at the time to the human brain, actually, that's the wrong move. It did something quite odd, which surprised scientists. Yeah. So there was one crucial move in a game. It has a name, something like Move 57 or something like that, which just looked like a very paradoxical kind of move to make. Now, my take on this is the following. This program is just a program which has been heavily optimised to be able to play the game of Go well. That doesn't mean that it should play like a human expert plays. It's just designed to play the game well. And human experts, you know, they read books about how to play Go and they play with other experts who've read books and learn from other human experts. And so they're learning a particular way of how to play this game, you know, like in chess, the standard openings and so on. There's no reason to think that a machine should have to follow those. It's simply trying to make the best possible move. And so I don't think it's surprising that it produced things that were unexpected for human experts. I think that's pretty much what you would expect. But what it demonstrates is that the difference between human decision-making and optimal machine decision-making. There was a computer or an AI program that learned all the old Atari games from scratch and sort of figured out in record-breaking time how to do Space Invaders. Yeah, this was another DeepMind creation. Both of these came out of DeepMind. And the really cute thing in that, the video that everybody should watch, you can easily find it on YouTube and the like, is playing the game of Breakout. And this is one of the earliest video games where you just control a bat and you're knocking a ball to knock bricks out of a wall. And it's a very simple computer game. And at some point, the DeepMind program learns to play this just by trial and error, looks to see whether it does something right. And if it does something right, it says, okay, the next time I see the same situation, I'm going to do the same thing. And it just repeatedly does that for huge, huge numbers of iterations. But then at one point, it learns that the quickest way to get a score in this game is basically to drill a hole through the wall and bounce the ball above the wall. And you then see it very, very quickly accumulate a score. And when you see that for the first time, it's really quite startling. It is startling, isn't it? Because it gives us that sense of a general intelligence. I'm not just playing a game. I'm doing something more than playing a game. There seems to be something bigger happening. And I want to come to this term of general intelligence and and sort of what we mean. You know, it's all very well being to play individual games, but we hear this term a lot, artificial general intelligence. Is that what we're aiming for? And if so, what is it? That's what some people are aiming for. I mean, I think it's not the mainstream thing in AI. Certainly OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, this is their declared aim. DeepMind say their task is to solve intelligence. So general intelligence is usually described as something like the following. We'll have achieved artificial general intelligence when we have a machine that can do anything which a human being can do, any intellectual task, let's say, that a human being can do. And let's be clear, that means anything. So we are a long, long way from that. What we've got at the moment is programs that can do very specific things, like playing a game of chess or playing a game of Go, that can do them very, very, very well, but you know, the chess playing program can't 
cook you an omelette or ride a bicycle or tell a joke, you know, so they're not general in that sense. We can do all of those things. And so that's the difference between contemporary AI and what we have now, these specialized things which do one thing very, very well, and general intelligence. I'm just thinking about my robot butler. I kind of imagine AI being like a brain in a vat and the robot butler being something like Boston Dynamics who build these incredible robots. And is there going to be a pairing of the two where a robot will be able to cook me an omelette rather than just being like Alexa in my room sitting on my desk? I think it's fair to say that robotics AI is progressing much more slowly than the kind of disembodied chat GPT type AI. So you've got to remember when you have a conversation with chat GPT and you get excited about this conversation, it's this weird disembodied thing that does not exist in our world. It doesn't know anything about what's going on in the world at the moment. It was trained at some point last year and really doesn't know about anything that's happened since then. And the way I was explaining it is the following. Halfway through a conversation, you could go on holiday for two weeks and come back and chat GPT is just sat there and it hasn't been thinking about anything in the intervening time. It hasn't been doing anything at all. It's not aware of the passage of time. It doesn't exist in the same world that you and I exist in. It's completely disembodied from it. And real intelligence, human intelligence is not like that. We exist in the world. I've had conversations that have come on for many years. It reminds me of Bill Drummond from the KLF. Many, many years ago, I used to work with Ken Campbell, the theatre director, who's sadly no longer with us. But I remember Ken telling me, oh, he's having this conversation with Bill Drummond. They were doing this play and Bill Drummond was doing the set decoration for this play. And Bill Drummond said to Ken, oh, I've just got to nip out and buy some Araldite. But then disappeared for like, 30 years. And in that intervening time, set up bands in the KLF, but eventually did come back with the Araldite like 30 <laughs> years later. That's a very Bill Drummond thing to do. Yeah, it reminded me of that chat GTV. Okay, there's so much hype about AI at the moment. The head of Google, I know, said AI is going to be more important than farming or electricity or fire or something like that. How fundamental a technology will it be from where you're sitting in a less hysterical, headliney kind of way? Are we getting too excited about it? Or is it absolutely this is going to be fundamental beyond what we could imagine? Yeah, difficult. This is one of those conversations I'm going to regret in 10 years' time, isn't it? I think, yes, it is fundamental, but we're getting excited in ways about things which are probably the wrong things. I think it genuinely is a technology to be excited about, but I think it's technology to be excited about in a way that you should have been excited about computer in 1980 when it was clear that computers were no longer these huge, very expensive things that only existed in very big companies, but you could have one on your desk. And you should be excited about it in the same way that when you first saw the World Wide Web and you realised the possibilities of the World Wide Web, it's going to be fundamental in those ways, I think. It really is a extremely exciting technology. For the most part, I think it's just going to kind of disappear, though, into your word processor and into your email program. And you won't even realise it's there. For example, on your word processor, you'll start typing something, you'll type a quick draft, and then you'll select an option that says, tidy this up, rewrite this and make it fancy. And it will bang, it will do that. You won't even realise that's AI. I mean, the other example I use is automated translation programs. At the turn of the century, reliable automated translation like Google Translate felt like it was a long way in the future. And now we just take it for granted. And hundreds of millions of people use that technology every day. I think that technology is one of the miracles of the modern world. This is the Tower of Babylon dream. This is absolutely miraculous technology. And I suspect an awful lot of people don't even realise that that's AI, but it is AI. You know, that was a huge goal of AI that was delivered. And people don't even realise it's there. For an awful lot of it will just disappear into the fabric of our world. It's really interesting that, isn't it? It's interesting how we get really worked up about technologies, all kinds of reasons. Oh, dystopian futures, they're going to take our jobs, all this kind of stuff. And we're kind of reluctant and we have this sort of techno-fear about it. But then we get used to things very quickly. We've only had the internet really since the early 90s, which isn't that long, or maybe it's that long ago, depending on who's listening to this podcast. But it's amazing. We don't even think about it. We just become used to it. And perhaps AI is going to be a bit like that. Yeah. And I think another thing is we're digital immigrants. You know, I first used the World Wide Web when I was, what, I don't know, 23, 24 or something like that. You know, it wasn't there when I was a kid. I didn't grow up with it. My kids have grown up with it. And not only that, they've grown up with broadband and smartphones and they just take those for granted. And whenever you have a situation like that, kids end up using the technology in ways that you cannot begin to imagine. You know, they'll go on and do something completely creative 
and different. And I will look at them and what the hell are they doing with this technology? You know, how are they using it in this weird and different way? And it will be the same. AI will be used in ways that we can hardly guess at now. A lot of that's just going to be enormously exciting, I think, particularly in the creative industries. You know, people are very concerned at the moment about will artists go out of business, you know, and so on. I think the answer is no. This is just going to be another tool any more than synthesizers put musicians out of business. It's just going to be another tool in the artist repertoire that they're going to use. It is amazing. Like I asked Chat GPT the other day, like everyone just mucking around. I said, can you write another verse of a particular song by the Smiths? And it did. And it was unbelievable. It was like, oh, Jesus. It's like, <laughs> there is no need for Morrissey anymore. Well, that's another conversation. But it's easy to be sort of pessimistic about it as well. And of course, cybercrime is massive as well. And I do kind of think about, crikey, what's going to happen if we worry about cybercrime now? What's it going to be like in 10 years' time? Well, there was a recently a really great quote from the singer-songwriter Nick Cave. And somebody asked ChatGPT to write a song in the style of Nick Cave. And anybody who knows Nick Cave, you can guess the kind of tone of this song. He came out with a really thoughtful and insightful response. And one of his key points was, this is very cute, but this machine has never experienced anything. And his songs are about human experience and feeling these programs haven't experienced that. They are just mimicking things. That's interesting. Yes. I just want to end with one final question. Elon Musk is quite noisy about AI. Very quickly, in a word, are we living in a matrix? No. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much. Mike, I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> Thank you. Our thanks once again to Talis and Charlotte over in History Hit for bringing us that clip from the patented podcast. So go and search that wherever you get your podcasts. Tech Post is brought to you by Limerick City Community Radio and in association with the Limerick Post newspaper. It also goes out as part of the podcast feed from the Limerick Post where you can get this show and loads more great shows. Please give us a rating and review if you like this show in whatever podcast app you use. The music is by Dylan Flynn and the Dead Poets and you can get their great music on Apple Music and Spotify and production assistance from Eric Fitzgerald.